for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. So this comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hey, good morning. I'm so glad to see you. Uh, it occurred to me this morning that where we're living right now with, with the virus is like being in an elementary school cafeteria during a food fight. And you're like, I know somebody who got hit. It's like, duh, food is flinging everywhere right now. We're all going to get hit at some point, probably, in the next two months. The good news is we will clean up and we will move on, okay? <laughs> Life will exist on the other side of this. And it also struck me as we were singing, um, Did You Feel, like my favorite worship song of the 90s. Um, oh, what was that line? Open up the doors and let the music play. Let the streets resound with singing. We need singing. <laughs> we need joy. We need to break out of the seriousness of the bubble that we are in and remember that God is doing stuff in the world, that we get to be a part of it. All is not lost. The world will exist after COVID. Jesus is on the throne. We're going to be okay. So to turn to the person next to you and say, we're going to be okay. <laughs> okay. That may be the most helpful thing that some of you will hear all morning. Well, there are, there are two questions that people have been asking in, have been asking in perpetuity in you know, history past, history future. They'll always be asking. Uh, the first of those questions is, is there a God? You know, you go to, uh, you know, all over the world we find early records of people trying to find an answer to that question or, or musing on that question, is there a God? Uh, the second question that people have been asking in perpetuity is, what is that God like? Is there a God, and what is that God like? By the way, it's, when someone says that they believe in God, it's worth us asking them the question, which God? Do you believe in Vishnu of the Hindus? Is it Allah? Is it the God of the deists who believe that, you know, like a watchmaker, God has, has set the watch and has now walked away from creation? Now, if you meet someone who says, well, I believe in the Christian God, it's worth even asking them a follow-up question. A further test for clarity is warranted. 
and asking them to describe, okay, tell me what your God is like. We ought to be listening and paying attention to this question, is their God Christ-like? Because uh, the, the Scriptures teach us that in the person of Jesus Christ, we see most clearly what God is like. This is what the Apostle John said in John 1. He said, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So if you want to know what God is like, according to the Gospel of John, you need to take a good look at the person of Jesus Christ. And by a good look, I mean a holistic look at the person of Jesus. It's very tempting, and people are doing it these days, it's very tempting to cherry-pick the parts of the gospel or those aspects of Jesus' personality that fit the best with our worldview. So we like him blessing the children. We may like him turning over the tables. We might not like some of his ethical teaching quite so much. In fact, I heard John Tyson, who's a pastor I admire, say once, you know, it's striking that when people say, well, the Jesus I know, dot, 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 just sounds a lot like those people. We need to take a good look at Jesus, meaning we need to take a holistic look at the person of Jesus Christ, drinking deeply of the whole Gospels so that we can savor the complex and stunning and paradoxically delightful goodness that is Jesus of Nazareth. If you want to understand what God is like, then take a good, long, holistic look at the person of Jesus Christ. This is the second Sunday in the season of Epiphany, and I would guess that if you have some level of familiarity with, you know, what we call the church calendar, you might know Advent. Aldi is aware of Advent. Trader Joe's knows Advent these days. Uh, you might know Lent, but like, you know, the social media dieters know about Lent too. Uh, Epiphany is one of those ones that you might not know a ton about. It's one that I'm learning about. Epiphany, uh, we've, we've, got, we've got Advent that begins the Christian year, we've got the 12 days celebrating Christmas, and then we've got the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany is tied to the Greek word for uh, to reveal or to manifest. And it shows up in verse 11 of the text that Nina just read for us. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed, through which he epiphanied his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Uh, this word epiphany is all about uh, revelation, and uh, because uh, like the story of the Magi, which we talked about in, in recent weeks, this story revealed something important. That's why it's often brought up in epiphany, that God was doing something new and something surprising. And as in the story of the unexpected wine here, Jesus was saving the best for last, that God had intended all along, though it was a surprise to His people, though they shouldn't have been surprised, that God was going to include the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, into His covenant family. And so Epiphany is this time of year where we take a good, long look at the person of Jesus Christ. Well, it's why we often read uh, the Gospels. We start our calendar year by contemplating the glory and the goodness of the Lord Jesus. And, and in doing so, it invites us in these dark and depressing times to reflect Him who is the light and the dark. Uh, I studied English Bible at ORU, which was my way of not having to do any of the hard part of biblical literature like Hebrew and Greek. I caught up on that later in seminary and also did a bad job at it in seminary. But I studied English Bible at ORU, and I remember my first uh, 
class was called hermeneutics, which is how to study the Bible, appreciating genre and writing techniques. And Don Vance was the professor, and he was incredibly difficult and so, so good for me. The first assignment we did was to study and compare and contrast Judges 4 and Judges 5. If I recall correctly, Judges 4 is this prosaic account of a war, and Judges 5 is a poetic account of it. And then the, the poetic account, the poetic rendering, you've got angels coming in and nature, you know, swallowing up the enemies. And it's like, none of that happened in Judges chapter 4, this way of illustrating, like, the Bible was uh, written in a way that, that appreciates genre. It was written with skill and with complexity. And this was a new idea to me. I had been aware to that point about the Bible as like you got your little bumper sticker versions of it, promises that you hold on to, but it's actually a marvelously complex, spirit-inspired work of literature. And so uh, the Gospel of John, similarly, is, is a really finely crafted, spirit-breathed uh, gift to us. Uh, the Holy Spirit leveraged John's gift as a writer and editor to assemble a, a witness to the incarnation of Jesus that was different than Matthew and different than Mark and different than Luke. And in the first half of John's gospel, uh, it's, it's what oftentimes is called the book of signs. Uh, John has chosen these moments in the life of Jesus that tell a story, that, uh, that, that, that signal uh, something greater that we should be paying attention to, these hand-selected moments in the ministry of Jesus that tell us something about Him. In the beginning of this first half, the book of signs, John leverages four institutions within uh, Judaism at the time of Jesus, uh, one of them here in John chapter 2 being weddings and marriage. And then after looking at these institutions, he goes on, and, and Jesus has these significant moments at the times of Jewish festivals, and Jesus says something or does something at the time of these festivals that epiphanies to us something about uh, the person of Jesus and about Judaism at the time of Jesus. And here in John chapter 2, a story is told about Judaism at the time of Jesus, that it was like a wedding that had come up short on wine and risked bringing shame on its hosts. And then Jesus comes into the scene. If, if you traveled at all into the Middle East or into uh, Eastern Asian countries, you know that uh, Judaism, like uh, or Israel in the first century, is a lot like many Middle Eastern countries, that the currency of it is honor and shame. It's an honor and shame culture. And honor and shame is one of the interpretive keys of making sense of, of the underlying dynamics at work in this passage here. The, the possibility of running out of wine is not merely a logistical problem about supply and demand. The risk here is the, the hit that could be coming to this family that, that running out of wine will represent. It's going to diminish their social capital. It's going to bring shame and embarrassment on them. It's not just they're running out of wine. Well, let's just drink water or whatever else we can find. This family uh, could be embarrassed. They don't have enough to be good hosts. Now, it's a, really, it's a funny story thinking about the mother-son relationship here. My mother is in the room. Hello, mother. And uh, uh, Mary is the first one that is aware of this need. Uh, if you've seen the, this episode of The Chosen, it's really good. Um, you see the dynamic here that they're suggesting Mary is a close friend of this family. Not sure if that's true, but she's, she's a person who pays attention. And she gets the sense that they're going to run out of wine and shame's going to be heaped on this family, and that's going to be problematic uh, for everyone involved. And, and so Mary, aware of the need, petitions her son to help. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? Which sounds like Jesus is being rude to his mom. It's not rude, it's just formal. 
It's like, Mom, don't bring me into this right now. Um, with all of the problems in the world, I think this is a good lesson for people who lack boundaries. Jesus is not making every single problem, including this social problem, naturally his. He's got some boundaries. He's not taking responsibility to fix everything. At that time, there will be another time when he does. There were people that he didn't heal. There were probably demons that he didn't exercise. There were tables that he didn't turn. And he said, in, in, in explaining to his disciples, this is my MO in ministry. I only do what I see the Father doing. And so he was content enough to be a, a party goer, just at the party because he was invited. But his mom sees a problem and compels him to get involved. He says, I only see what I do, my, I only do what I see my father doing. But we know that wasn't exhaustively true. Because when his mom turned to the servant and said, and said do whatever he tells you, he started to get, he, he got to work. So I only do what I see my father doing or what my mother politely asks that I do. Jesus honored his father and his mother. Now, John, in sharing the story with us, includes no unnecessary details. You'll, you'll notice that the story takes place on the third day. The third day is obviously a big image for us that when, when Jesus is on the scene, like the third day is a good day. But John uh, wants us to notice these stone jars that are going to be the, the vessels that Jesus turns water into wine. And, and he notes that they're used by the Jews for the purpose of purification. They'd scrub up so they'd be ceremonially clean before they enjoy the meal. And Jesus, still working at the edges of the party, goes into the room where these stone jars are, are set aside for the purpose of purification. And, and, it's, and it's these stone jars he uses. He, he turns them into the vessels to hold the best wine that anybody's ever tasted. And the New Testament, in interpreting this through the whole story of the person of Jesus, sees how Jesus took the nation of Israel and transformed it and redefined it into being a vessel for the gospel, the goodness of the gospel that would bring delight to all the nations of the earth. So there's a symbolism there in the, the, the jars used for purification, but we're also meant to appreciate the volume involved. Jesus tells the servants, fill these up, these, these uh, stone pitchers, fill them up to the brim. It said that each of them held something like 20 to 30 gallons, which is a lot. Uh, a gallon is 133 ounces. A standard bottle of wine is something like 25 ounces. So Jesus, in transforming the water into wine in these stone basins, uh, effectively brings between 640 and 750 fresh bottles of the best wine that anybody's ever tasted to the party. It's like backing up the truck, you know, and we need everybody's help. The party's about to get really great. <laughs> Jesus brings the, the party and plenty. The disciples know that this has happened at his hand. The servants know that this has happened at his hand, but nobody else does. And when the master of ceremonies gets his first swig of this new wine, he stops the party and he draws everyone's attention. He puts the spotlight on the bridegroom and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. It doesn't necessarily mean they're all drunk, but their, their palate has been affected. But you have saved the best till now. And everyone, you have to imagine, just applauds the bridegroom for bringing out the top shelf stuff at, at the second half of the party. 
And, and again, thinking about this through the lens of an honor-shame culture, we see that by intervening, Jesus has not only preserved the honor of this young couple and their families, he's actually enhanced their honor in a way that nobody is ever going to forget because they could taste it. And John tells us in verse 11 that what Jesus did here at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, that what he did here was the first sign through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples, the ones who were aware of what he had done, believed in him. I want to reflect on how in in John chapter 2, three unique ways in which Jesus revealed his glory to the disciples. The first one is that he did so quietly. No American would write this story. Jesus didn't draw attention to the scarcity of the wine in order to hype up the magnitude of the miracle, which is what would happen in, like, any romantic comedy. Like, the, the, you know, the stuff has already hit the fan, and everyone knows that this is going to go really poorly. Jesus does it quietly and in a timely fashion to preserve the dignity of this family. He, he doesn't draw attention to their scarcity to make himself look better. The family certainly appreciates this in retrospect when they talk to the master of ceremonies or they talk to the servants and realize, like, yeah, we were totally out, and then he did this for us. He kept to the margins, and his miracle was unknown to the majority of the guests, which, amazing, Jesus obeyed his own sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. Again and again, and I think it's in Matthew chapter 6, maybe it's the latter part of chapter 5, he says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. And when your father who sees what is done in secret sees you, he'll reward you. And similarly, when you pray, don't you know, go out in the street corners to get all the attention, but go into your inner room and shut the door. And when you pray to your father who's in secret, he'll reward you for it. When you give alms again and again, Jesus obeyed his own teaching about doing good and having a rich secret life. It suggested to me that while Jesus is willing to do things, that Jesus is willing to do things for which he never receives credit. Which means that there may have been miracles in your life and you don't even know to thank him for it. Here he was at the, at the outskirts of your life, quietly performing Miracles, and you didn't even know that you should thank him for it. Miracles can be missed. And while Jesus' ministry, you know, you know even in the next chapter, is going to draw crowds, it's clear that, that Jesus didn't put all of his hope in gaining a crowd. The crowds was, weren't what he was after. You think, especially in Mark's gospel and elsewhere, it's called the messianic secret, that Jesus will heal someone and say, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody I did it. Or I'll cast out a demon and be like, hey, by the way, don't tell anybody. Offer the gift of the priest, but like keep it between you and me, okay? And I don't know if it was reverse psychology. I don't think Jesus was that coy to try to actually get it out there. It's like, if you, like, like put, don't sit here, and everyone's like, I really want to sit there. I don't think Jesus was just being coy. He just trusted that his father was going to glorify him at the right time, and so he could do the right thing quietly. Jesus revealed his glory quietly. Um, on the back table out there, we've got these little cards that say daily office. It just means daily Bible reading and prayer. And as a church, we're now, whatever, what's today's date? Okay, we're 16 days in. I'm 15 days in. I'm a day behind in my reading. 
um, into just reading the Bible together. We've been in Jeremiah and First uh, and Second Thessalonians and in the Psalms. And I was struck in the, the readings in First Thessalonians this last week by Paul's admonition. He said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Numerous things going on, but I love the phrase, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life so that your quiet life, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Similar to how Paul instructs the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, talking about how worship should be conducted. He said, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. For what purpose? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul says to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. He says to Timothy in the church in, in Ephesus, pray for everybody so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. It all suggests to me we must not despise or diminish the value of a quietly faithful life. Because American Christianity can be so loud and muscular and angling for the spotlight, it can, it can put undue pressure on us to do something great for God. It's like to build a Tower of Babel but for Jesus. And, and many of us were very positively affected by books like Radical by David Platt. And, and the story of, that, of David Platt and that church is really just so compelling. But the Americanized pressure to do something great for God can, can often be this anxiety-driven, Americanized, achievement-oriented thing that the Father isn't necessarily doing. Like Jesus, we're meant to only do what we see the Father doing. Paul says, lead, lead a quiet life. Pray that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. Why? Because there's glory revealed in a quietly faithful life. Not cloistered, not cut off, but quiet and faithful. I like how Jesus revealed his glory quietly. The second thing I, I, I'm struck by in, in studying the passage this week is how Jesus revealed his glory respectfully. In this instance, Jesus uh, stepped in to act when he was requested to do so. It tells me, at least in the present age, that Jesus isn't going to force himself on anybody. Jesus is not going to beat people over the head with the Bible. He may stop people in their tracks, but he ultimately acknowledges and respects human self-determination. He's willing to be and often is rejected, ignored, or accidentally overlooked. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Andy Crouch, uh, said this. He said, The true power at work in the world may often be invisible, even as its effects are seen, celebrated, and perhaps attributed to a completely spurious source, like the wrong people get the credit. The true power at work in the world may be missed. The bridegroom, Crouch commenting on the passage here, gets the credit, but Jesus gets the glory, a glory that, like his power, is hidden even as it's revealed, which suggests two things to me. Uh, one, because Jesus won't force himself on us, when we have needs of him, we should ask him. Go to the Gospels again, and, you know, ask, seek, knock. 
prayer sometimes can just utterly confound me and blow my mind. And yet Jesus so respects our will and wishes and wants that if we need something, if we desire something, he wants us to have a conversation even though he knows what we need before we ask. Because he won't force himself, when we have needs, we should ask for help. And second, because he's demonstrated he'll meet our needs even without our awareness, we have a lot to thank him for. And believers should be people who cultivate deep gratitude for the life that he's given us. And then the third thing that I love about the, the way in which Jesus revealed his glory is that he did it delightfully. Like, even the godless drunk at the party was like, this is awesome! He did it in a way that was, was artisanal and masterful. What he brought to the table literally was both fabulous and abundant. And I wonder if, if in your thinking about God, do you believe that God is good enough and generous enough and even fun enough to do something like this? You could apply it to this story, Paul's famous doxology in his letter to the Ephesians. Think about Jesus bringing 750 bottles of wine to the party. Now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. That's the toast that they should have given at that part of the meal, and they didn't even know to thank him for it. He, re- he revealed his glory quietly. He revealed his glory respectfully. He revealed his glory delightfully. Andy Crouch again. So what does it mean to say that this miracle reveals Jesus' glory? He's not transfigured as he would be on the mountain later into a figure of dazzling brilliance. He never becomes the center of attention, continuing to recline at the outskirts of the feast. Rather, the glory revealed here is Jesus' true identity. You see, like, this is what he's really like. Oh, and if this is what he's really like, this is what God's really like. It's the magnificence of true being. Just as a glorious glass of wine is one that is truly, deeply, completely itself. So this miracle shows the disciples and the servants what Jesus is truly like. Not only a a good teacher, but the restorer of all life. Not just a dutiful son, but the perfectly obedient son of the Father. Not just the fixer of little cares and problems, but the one who provides the best wine just when we would expect the worst. For the disciples, the glory of the person of Jesus was revealed at the table in the drinking of wine. And for the church all throughout history and and for us today, as we gather at the table, not only is Jesus the host, he's also the feast as he offers himself to us And my prayer is, in in this very weird time that we exist as human beings, where so many of us just feel the dark cloud following us everywhere we go, my prayer is that at the table today that we may see him more clearly and not overlook him as he quietly offers himself to us. My prayer is that we might love him more dearly, inviting him to teach and to train and to shepherd us to being like him and being content to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
And my prayer is that we might learn to walk with him more nearly, learning to trust that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. So what do you need to ask of him today? Do you need to ask for him to just to, to, to figuratively fill your cup? It's like the, the joy of life is gone. You're just discouraged and tired, need physical healing, need a financial breakthrough. Maybe you, you feel like you're in a desert in your life with God and you need him to just show his face to you or, or let you hear his voice in a renewed way. The invitation is just to enjoy the presence of the Lord Jesus as we come to the table today, confident that he is even more present in this room than we are. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that as we gather today and as we, we gather around the table, would you... Would it please you to make yourself known to us in a fresh way today? Help us to unlearn, Lord Jesus, those old habits of thought, the way that other people say that you're like, that just doesn't smell like Jesus. For those of us who grew up with perhaps heavy-handed parents and we take you to be equally heavy-handed and judgmental and always writing down all of our demerits, would you help us to unlearn this habit of thinking about you and to see you as you are. Lord, pray, Lord Jesus, that, that like you did at the party, that you would fill our glass today, that you bring delight to our hearts and joy to our faces, that you'd restore to us the joy of our salvation. I pray for folks who are at home who are so hacked off and resentful about being at home because this, this uh, pandemic is just wearying, and I pray that even for them, Jesus, you do a good work today. And most of all, Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, we pray that you would be present. You would be present, Jesus, our great high priest, as you are present with your disciples in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. Would you be present with us as you were with the partygoers at this wedding in Cana of Galilee? And may you quietly and respectfully and delightfully and even if you want to forcefully reveal your glory among us today. Well, Jesus, we love you and we trust you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.